0: The first, degree. first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news, you see it on the paper,
1: you see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies,
2: not in real life.
1: When he asked if I knew about the Gilboa Beach killings, and I said, yeah, everybody from Long Island does, that's when he got like. Weird, like real weird. Like his body language changed. His eyes, like, seemed like he wasn't really totally there. It seemed like he was like reliving it, but trying to give you like a hypothetical on what he thinks happened and why, and and and, like shit like that, and who he thinks it could be.
0: Welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vannick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. Oh, boy, has it been a crazy couple weeks, huh, Lex?
2: <laughs> Our heads are still spinning from, first of all, getting to meet everybody at our New York City meetup.
0: Yeah, and our Chicago meetup. Hello. <laughs> oh, no, I was going chronologically. Then oh, okay. I was going to go
2: explosive <laughs> news of the arrest of the suspected Long Island serial killer. And then, of course, the Chicago meetup. And now here we are again to bring you guys more Yeah, updates. I mean,
0: this is the, the only other time that we've done something like this was when, you know, Brian Koberger got arrested and we kind of went through his whole situation. And uh, we really, um, I can't say enjoy doing this because- that's not the right word, but we like being able to bring you updates on the case in real time as they're happening and kind of being not a news source at all because we're not, but sort of gathering all the news sources and bringing them to you, our listener, in a more palatable way because there's so much shit that's going on on the internet, especially about this case right now. So we pulled our Facebook group, we pulled all of our lovely firsties that we met up with the past two weeks and you guys say that you really like these segments.
2: Absolutely. And this one is going to get extra interesting for those of you listening, because not only are we going to just kind of be the aggregate of all of the news information that's been breaking, but we also have an interview that is very compelling. And we're going to start integrating interviews, people, one degree of separation from this case in very interesting ways into these update episodes as well. So you're going to get a hybrid, like the best of the
0: first degree, real-time updates and compelling interviews. Absolutely. And I do have to say a big thank you to Alexis Linkletter over here. She has been boots on the ground, literally interviewing every single person that she can get her hands on. Alexis is really trying to gather a lot of information because I think as we all know, there's a lot of corruption going on with this whole situation over the past 20 years. And uh, it's not all as it seems. Uh, I'll leave it at that.
2: No. And there are a lot of questions. And we also want to shout out Jamie, the designer at Jimmy Toast, for being our honorary like researcher because this woman is so well-connected. She knows so many people connected to this case. In fact, she was the one who introduced me to today's
0: interview. And our original first degree for the episodes, right? Megan Waterman's sister.
2: Yeah, that's right. So Jamie has a passion for this case that is unmatched. I mean, I, of course, have cared about it forever. Jack has an immense care for it as well. But Jamie,
0: too. I mean, she is all in. So shout out to Jamie. Love you, girl. And before we start today's episode, I do want to say a huge, huge thank you to everybody that did come out to those meetups. I know a lot of you drove hours and hours and hours to be there. We were so lucky that we got to have conversations with most everybody that came to them. And we just are so thankful and grateful that you guys all took time out of your weekend, out of your week to come and meet us. Like It made us feel so warm and fuzzy inside. After each meetup, we were like beaming just because it was really awesome to build this community, have you all meet each other and form friendships with each other. Like it is something that's becoming bigger than us. And we're like forever grateful for that. Yeah. I couldn't set
2: it better myself. And during those conversations, I choked up a couple of times. I had some really meaningful conversations at these meetups. And if you're in a Facebook group and you were at the Chicago meetup, all the pictures that
0: Matt, the honorary first degree photographer will be In there soon. All right. Should we jump right into everything, Lex?
2: So, for all of you, we are recording this on Tuesday, July 25th. This episode will air tomorrow, Wednesday, July 26th. So, just so you know, this morning on Tuesday, there was a press conference that was held in front of Rex Hewerman's house. And it was a DA, Ray Tierney, essentially saying that they are wrapping up their search efforts there, meaning they've searched every nook, cranny, corner, taken all the evidence that they can. And they made some revelations about what was found and what wasn't found in the house. So I'll just dig right into this. Right. They basically said that there was no tangible evidence of remains found, right? Nothing that can be revealed or identified without trace testing of hair, fluids, DNA, whatever. So they may still find evidence of victims there. But as far as like body parts, bones, remains, they confirmed that nothing like that was found
0: in the house or in the backyard or in this vault or any of that. Well, and that's a thing that I think a lot of people were thinking, especially when they started to rip apart his backyard. And they're digging with like the excavator and like all that kind of stuff. They're like, are there bodies underneath this house? Like what the hell are they really looking for to rip up the entire yard? Yeah, absolutely. And they talked
2: about using uh, ground penetrating radar technology to see if there were, you know, any remains in the ground. And by all accounts, they have confirmed that they have not found anything like that at the home. So they touched on that. Another thing they went into is Rex's potential connection to other cold cases around the United States. So They have not confirmed yet whether or not Rex is responsible for the other murders connected to the List case. But what they did confirm today is something I had no idea. This shocked me too. Oh, it it angers me. And we'll get into it once I tell you what it is. Yeah. (laughs) So one of the reporters asked the DA during the press conference if Rex Uriman's DNA has been put into um, a national DNA database like CODIS to see if he's possibly responsible for cold cases around the country. And he revealed in a shocking statement that He is not allowed to do that. It's a New York state law until Rex Sherman is convicted of these crimes. That's a protection I did not know that suspected alleged murderers had.
0: Yeah, it was crazy because I was watching the news conference as well with my mom and we were both just like, there was a lot of non-answers that were happening in the news conference obviously. A lot of deflections. A lot of deflections. Batting
2: those questions away left and right.
0: Yeah, but that when he said that, my mom and I both looked at each other we're, we're like, wait, what did he just say? Like, that seems so ass backwards, especially, I mean, I know a law is a law, but it's like, dude, we gotta know. we. You gotta throw it in there. Like, there's very, po- especially with the South Carolina house, the Vegas house, it's like, there's, ugh, it's
2: like infuriating. Well, and you just think about families of victims who, their killers haven't been identified yet and the possibility that he could be that killer. And then you think about the massive magnitude of this case and how long it's going to take to adjudicate. You know, it's could yeah. be like 10 years, yeah, depending on what happens in court, um, how much discovery is involved, how many more victims he's ultimately charged with. And it just seems weird that you would kneecap. It seems as though it's an investigative strategy. And if genetic genealogy is allowed in New York, which New York was late, came on that train way later. Yeah. Um, it was one of the later states to allow that kind of investigative work. But if that's allowed, why wouldn't this be allowed? Because it seems as though it would be an investigative tactic that would help police officers. And, you know, why can't someone get a surreptitious sample from Rex Hurman and, like, put it in the database? Like, that makes no
0: sense to me. Yeah, it really doesn't make any sense. And that's weird that New York was so late to the game. Does it have anything to do with, like, where what political side states lean on? Or is that is it all just kind of... You know, that's a good question. I
2: just know that the defining case was the Katrina Vetrano murder. Mm-hmm. Um, if you remember that one, she was the runner yeah. in Brooklyn who yeah. went on a run. And, you know, that was the case that sort of pushed it over the edge to allow them to start doing it because there was, was so like much uproar. Two years ago? Yeah. It, they were definitely a later state. And it just seems odd. I mean, it could save so much money to states investigating possible cold cases connected to him. It doesn't really make any sense to me. Yeah, that's insane. Now, what do you think about the vault? Did you see the part of the press conference where they talked about the vault?
0: Well, I saw the part of the press conference when every single person was asking if they found a mattress in that vault. Like, that was the number one deflection that that guy was making. Like, he probably got asked about a mattress being in the vault like 10 times, um, which makes me think that there probably was in there. Well, his
2: answer was very like, there was lots of items in the vault, you know? Yeah. And he kept pivoting back towards the guns, like you know, there were 200, I think 79 guns, is what he kept saying. And he was being very vague about the vault. But listen, they preserved the secrecy of the investigation in the last 16 months, and it did them really well. So I don't want to criticize this no. task force's, you know, strategy because it's working. So if they're preserving secrecy, I trust that it's for a
0: reason absolutely and the whole i mean i saw between 200 and 300 guns that he had in there and i think he only had permits for 92 of them that is far too many guns for one person to own and be able to have permits for like that is, is so insane to me
2: well it also blows my mind that someone has the patience to to get that many permits for anything like what kind of i don't even i drag my feet doing my taxes this guy's got 92 permits for 92 different guns and like... While he
0: is literally being a serial killer on the side too. It's just like, what is this dude doing?
2: I do not know. So the end of this press conference just marked the end of the search of this property. But we know the searches will continue on and in Rex's other properties. And another thing they said is that this neighborhood has been so disrupted by sort of the morbid tourism of people wanting to go gawk at the house and lurk around the neighborhood that they have announced that they are going to find people who do this. They want this spectator sport of watching the house over once the police remove their presence from that area. So that's where we're at with the press conference. And now we're going to move on to more because there's so much more to everything that's been going on. So we're going to continue to learn about this suspect in real time, which is what we're doing. And just so you know, research alone isn't going to paint the proper picture. It's going to be those who interacted with him that will really help us understand the double life that this man was allegedly living.
0: I think that we all know at this point that Rex was sort of living this double life. On the outside, he was this... I mean, he seemed to kind of like boast a little bit about how big of an architect that he was, I feel like to people. But, you know, he was this family man. He had kids. He had this wife. They were living in their house that he had grown up with. And by all accounts, even to their neighbors and to coworkers, like he was normal. Maybe it was a little bit weird, but he was normal. But as we all know, he is a serial killer, allegedly. And he was also allegedly spending a lot of time reliving all of his crimes through casual conversations to basically anybody that would listen. He loved bringing up true crime. He loved bringing up serial killers. And he loved bringing up the Gilgo Beach and Long Island serial killer.
2: And that's what's so crazy. It's like such a weird thing to want to like take people's temperatures, engage the reactions, knowing all the while that you had a hand or were explicitly responsible for the murders of these poor women and I think it's deranged and I think there's a chance that he might talk down the line given that this is the I, kind of person he is
0: absolutely I said this in the very beginning like to me I can't imagine him not talking I think he's so obsessed with himself again we keep comparing him to BTK but there is that like boastfulness and like the self-obsession and like thinking he's better than everybody else like i I can see him talking. I can see him not shutting the fuck up, to be honest. So I would be surprised if he didn't talk. A hundred percent.
2: And, that also terrifies me. Like what more is there to learn about this alleged monster, right? So all this brings us to today's first degree. Her name's Nikki Brass and she had a strange and also scary encounter with the man that's been arrested in connection with this case. And Nikki definitely has a story to tell. And it's a chilling one and a harrowing one. And the one we're telling today, if you've seen Nikki on the news is the complete picture, not just scattered sound bites, you know, in control of a reporter or a new. News editor, like she is telling us what's important to her in terms of the context of her connection to this case.
0: So, when Nikki was younger in 2014 and 2015, she was struggling with addiction and she found herself turning to sex work out of desperation. And this is something we've talked about a lot recently, you know, with all of the victims of the Long Island serial killer. Most of them being sex workers like women usually don't turn to sex work because they want to. It's mostly out of desperation. They're trying to take care of their their kids. They're trying to just not be evicted from their apartments like that is the reason why so many of them do turn to sex work. And that's why Nikki did And in the years following the experience that she'll be sharing with us today, she's completely turned her life around. Now she has a family, she has a partner, and she has a career that she's really, really proud of. And she did all of this against the odds, and we're going to share more about those odds later in the episode. But before we start, there are some things that we need to help set straight for Nikki. Right, because apparently the news got some shit wrong.
1: And I don't like that Like all these news outlets that didn't talk to me went on Facebook and took my picture and wrote a story. I feel like the other people, the the outlets are trying to make it seem like I could have been another victim. But while doing that, they're making the victims seem like they're nothing. They don't matter. They're just sex workers. And I feel like that's really fucked up.
2: So, yeah, I guess a lot of the news outlets failed to mention that Nikki was no longer in sex work and she's established her career as a hairstylist and she's got a family and an amazing life and she's no, you know, longer struggling struggling with addiction and that's something that she felt was an important detail and it certainly is.
0: Yeah, and I just think it's so gross especially in situations like this. Like that's where the news and the media like really it shows the scumminess and like the absolute worst and like yuckiest of the of mankind kind of right like they're gonna go take the worst picture that they can find they're gonna find the most like clickbaity part of somebody's life to share and it's really unfair especially with somebody like her that's trying to share her story and do the right thing
2: right and when you label somebody and all the people connected to this case like sex workers like it's a monolith like it's a blanket statement you're really That feels like marginalizing language to me. It's like, well, it's
0: dehumanizing. You're taking everything away from that person other than them being a sex worker. That one
2: thing they were forced into
0: out of desperation, right? It wouldn't happen if the woman was like a lawyer or a doctor or like even worked a desk job. Like, it seems like it's the only profession that kind of you get that with. Absolutely. And Nikki's obviously doing
2: the right thing by coming forward and sharing her story. And she didn't expect the media to twist her words around the way they have. So we're not only here to paint the complete picture, like we said, but also help you understand the trap that many people who are forced into sex work get caught in, a trap that puts these women in one dangerous situation after the next. Okay. So we're going to jump into this. You know the deal. We're going back.
0: So it was around 2015 when Nikki was first contacted by Rex.
2: Tell me, can you tell me how you were put in touch with him in the first place? Like, tell me about that encounter.
1: So I was on, like, back then I was on some of those sketchier sites, like back pages and seeking and stuff like that. And I had profiles and we got in touch through one of those. Nobody ever uses real phone numbers. They use, like, generating apps. And, um... You know what I mean? Because nobody wants to, a paper trail or anyone to know what they're doing. So it's like very sketchy, like talking on weird apps and things like that.
0: So obviously at this time, Rex was probably using one of his many burner phones that we have come to find out that he was constantly using when he was engaging in uh, contacting sex workers at the time. Um, but that like what she was saying, like, that's what makes it so scary. Like, there's no way to trace a lot of these.
2: What I would be really interested to know um, is whether or not Rex's wife was out of town when this date occurred. Like, did mm. he only engage in this sort of activity at all, whether he ended up perpetrating violence against them or not when his wife was out of town? That's a
0: question that I definitely have. Yeah, that's very interesting. So Rex makes this initial contact and then he's pushing things forward to make solid plans with Nikki.
1: Because I, I was at Turkey Cheese with my little sister... And I showed her a picture of him, and I said, this is who I'm going out with in case anything happens. And I would do that every time just to be safe. Like, I would always tell her who I was going with. If I could, like, not sketchy enough, steal a picture license plate, I would. And I would always meet in public because I just didn't really trust people. So, like, even though I wasn't, like, so much caring about my safety, I, like, still took some precautions.
2: Nikki, although she didn't want to be doing sex work in the first place because she understood the dangers, she would do things like take pictures of a license plate if she could. And she's telling her sister who she's going to see and showing her a picture of
0: what he looks like. Well, and I think that this is something that any person should be doing anytime that they go meet up with a stranger. I mean, we talk about it all the time. Like when you're on dating apps and when you're meeting people off the internet, like it's very, very smart to tell somebody like, here's a picture, here's a phone number, here's where we're going, because you never know what could happen. So it's really good that she did that.
2: 100%. And this is like when I moved to LA, this would happen when I had like sketchy internship interviews. So I'd be like, this feels oh. weird. And, or like date, like online dating, you know, it's all the same. Like, you should always tell someone where you're going. And Nikki had that all buttoned up.
0: And when Rex wanted to get together with Nikki, he wanted Nikki to meet him one county over, which is where he lived in Nassau County. So we see that, I think, a lot in, especially his stories with his victims, like he wanted them to come over to him.
1: When we got in touch, he really wanted me to go out to Nassau County. But I am, like, very locationally challenged. I need GPS for everywhere I go. And I didn't feel comfortable going, um... To, to Nassau County, you know what I mean, and not knowing the area, not having anyone nearby if I need them, like that—that that whole thing made me uncomfortable.
2: And like Jack said before, this feels intentional. He's trying to kind of lure people out of their comfort zone. Is kind of how it feels to me. And she has the spot on instinct. She's like, I don't want to go somewhere where I don't know anybody. Where if I need to get picked up in a pinch, that's going to be difficult. Um, yeah, I mean, she she made the right choice here.
0: Well, and absolutely, and especially with you know the things that we learned about Amberlin Costello's situation with him, him going to somebody else's house or him going somewhere that's not his own house, like there's all these ver- variables of things that can happen. So he's obviously trying to control the situation and make everything as easy as possible for him. Whatever he is deciding that he is going to do that night, right? That's a really good point, actually, and.
2: Ultimately, once Nikki kind of put her foot down and she's like, I'm not going to Nassau. You're going to come to Suffolk County. They agreed to meet in the village or town of Port Jefferson. It's a really pretty waterfront town that's hilly and has a lot of restaurants. It's like wooded. It's like a beautiful place Mm -hmm. to meet up. And they've got like a ton of seafood restaurants. And knowing how beautiful it is and how kind of picturesque it is, it's really odd to me that it's kind of the backdrop for today's story.
1: So I convinced him to come off court, Jeff, and meet me at the steam room because I knew the area and I had friends in the area. So if I needed somebody like quick, they'd be there. And yeah, we went there for dinner and drinks. I met him in the parking lot, but I did not see his car because I didn't need him by his car. I met him going towards the front of the restaurant.
0: I mean, I really do wish for the sake of the story that she did see his car just for like another stamp of that uh, avalanche. But I think that, I mean, this is the best compromise that I feel like she could have done. You know, meeting in a place that she at least knew somebody that was near enough that could come help her. And of course, they're meeting in a public place. So I think given the circumstances, it's probably the best uh, that she can do.
2: Absolutely. And I've read somewhere that Rex Heuermann sold his Chevy Avalanche to his brother. And I wonder what year he did that. Because I know they recovered it in South Carolina where the brother lived. So I do wonder if he still had the Avalanche at this point.
0: Right. So let's kind of get into what Rex Uerman was actually like. What did you think when you first saw him in person?
1: He seemed really normal. He seemed like, I mean, he was big and his weight was very imposing. and uh, You know what I mean? But he didn't seem weird. He seemed normal. Like just a normal business guy, like any other guy that, because when I did do it, I did it more for like Long Island's uh, wealthier men. And, uh, I guess, like, it's a lot of, like, discretion and quietness and sneaking around. At some point, we talked about his job. We talked about what I want to do for a living, like, what I aspire to be. We did basic table talk at manners we ordered. Uh, I know he thought it was really weird that I didn't drink. Like, I just wanted one Malibu babies and then soda. I mean,
0: the thing that pops out to me the most is that he was trying to get her to drink and probably trying to get her drunk and lose her inhibitions or whatever he was thinking in that moment. Oh yeah. Well, my mind goes
2: to piggyback on what you said is like, if she's drunk, she can't drive herself home, oh. you know? Mm-hmm. And then it's like, no, no, come back to my place in my car, leave your car here in Port Jefferson and we'll drive back to a neighboring County. It, it's probably about 40, mi- 40 minutes away where he lives in comparison to Port Jefferson.
0: Yeah. That's actually really, really interesting point.
2: But to your point, it's just control his car, his house, his
0: domain. Um, He didn't want to lose control of his situation. And going back to kind of, you know, what she was saying that he was like kind of just seeming normal. I mean, I feel like that's sort of the description that we're getting of this guy is he kind of just seems like your average Joe at first until he starts talking. Absolutely.
2: So during Nikki's dinner with this guy, Rex Heuermann, we wondered what he opted to share about his personal life, if anything.
1: So he said he was divorced to his kids, um, but he said he was an architect, and I remember that. And I even told my sister, like, um, I'm gonna go on a date with this guy who works in Manhattan.
0: So, obviously, we know that he's lying. He's not divorced. He's still married. Again, like Alexa said earlier, it would be really interesting to see if his wife was out of town because he's obviously, I think, trying to get her to come over to his neck of the woods. So, unless he rented out, like, a motel or a hotel or something like that, like, she it kind of seems like maybe she's out of town at the moment. She must have been. And,
2: yeah, because you can't have this woman, Nikki, back to your house if your wife's there. If you're saying you're divorced. No, not at all. It also makes me wonder about the inside of the house. Like, are there no, like, wedding photos of them around? Like, is there no, you know, remnants of the wife in the master bedroom? Like, how can – those kinds of lies blow my mind. Like, when people have people over and they're married and they share the house with someone, it's like, how does that
0: work? Well, and he has kids, too. But I think what we've learned about the inside of his house, it was pretty dilapidated, like, very cluttered, really messy, like, probably kind of gross that – there either might have been so, many, so much junk around that it was easy for him to like turn down like a picture frame or something like that. Or what we've also learned is it seems like he had a lot of control over his wife in a lot of different ways that maybe, you know, the house was kind of just like what he wanted it to be like. And it wasn't it didn't seem like a married couple in there. And not only was Rex obviously married at this time, but he had also been married once before. So his first wedding was on September 29th of 1990. And we're not going to share any personal information about his ex-wife because obviously she's dealing with her own nightmare, navigating everything that's going on. But we do think that it was interesting that he had also been married before and what he could have been doing at that time.
2: So... With that, let's pivot back to what Nikki said the conversation was like between she and Rex the night this happened. So another thing that they talked about on this date was that he was an architect in Manhattan. And a job like this requires higher education and a license. And the connotation generally is that you make pretty good money doing this. I think like it has a very ritzy sort of association like, ooh, an architect. I mean, you make good money doing that. But as we're digging into this guy and his life, we're finding that characteristics of his life seem to completely contradict that assumption.
0: Yeah. So what I touched on a little bit before is I just feel like his relationship with his wife is very interesting to me. And what we've learned, there's not a lot that we're really getting, but we've learned little bits and pieces about how their relationship work. And then, of course, you can kind of analyze those little clues that we're getting. But one of the things that we had read in an article is his wife always used food stamps to pay for their groceries when they went grocery shopping. So this like absolutely contradicts the uh, maybe that video that he made in 2022 about him being this big architect in his architect firm, like making all this money. he's just like such a little smug fuck, like acting like he's this like big shot while his wife is paying for food st- with food stamps. And then we also come to find out that he never went to the grocery store with his wife. I feel like the only thing that we're getting of anybody interacting with his wife is at the grocery store or their neighbors. And the neighbors are saying that they never interact with her. Right. Yeah. And they also said of the grocery
2: store, to piggyback on what you said, was like they kind of watched the children grow up. I mean, they were always in this area, but like Rex was never there. And this is an affluent area. You know, it would stick out to a cashier to accept food stamps. And it would be odd for the wife of an architect to be using food stamps. I mean, it's definitely
0: perplexing. It's really perplexing, and from one of these articles, I kind of pulled a quote, and it said, cashiers at the grocery store knew them as a joyless family that shopped several times a week and paid with food stamps. And it said that his wife often looked depressed and the store manager said, quote, maybe his family was just so scared of him that they were like his prisoners who would never tell anyone, even if they had some idea of what he was capable of. And I think that that is a really interesting quote because Alexis and I have had a lot of, you know, offline conversations about his relationship with his wife and, you know, how could she have not known anything and like, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, you know, she very well could have been a victim in a lot of senses, to Rex Yorman himself. And she could have been absolutely terrified. He could have been abusing her. Like there's so many different things that could happen in their relationship. And by getting these little glimpses of what people have seen of them, it doesn't seem like a healthy one at the very least.
2: Right. And sometimes when these relationships begin, they're abusive. You know, Rex could have targeted a woman in a vulnerable position and started a manipulation and gaslighting and sort of domineering lifestyle that would have allowed him to get away with this, where she maybe wasn't in the position to ask questions. Maybe there was severe financial abuse going on. I mean, if she's being forced to use food stamps, of course, we're just speculating, but anything's possible. And like a lot of um, the story about the food stamps came from this really amazing New York Times article. And in the same article, there was something else that I thought was really interesting. Um, At a local Whole Foods, one employee recalled that he pilfered clementines from a bowl being put out for children. And when they confronted him about it and were like, "Why? those are for the kids, he got really agitated. And from that point forward, they referred to Rex Newman as the orange guy. Um, God. And I'm just like, this guy sounds like the worst person that's ever been born.
0: So does that mean it was like when they have the little samples of the oranges and he was just like taking them all for himself?
2: I guess so, or maybe it wasn't a little event and it was like truly like <laughs> cuties for children. I don't I don't know. It's it's really odd, but like the financial perplexities don't really end there. We've also learned that he had issues paying his taxes for more than a decade. And county records reveal that Huberman was subject to six tax liens filed by the IRS between twenty ten and twenty twenty one. And according to the liens, Hewerman owed a total of more than $425,000 for taxes he'd failed to pay going all the way back to 2005. Wow, dude. (laughs) Right? And beyond that, Hewerman and his wife also currently owe a total of more than $81,500 in personal income tax to the state of New York, with the tax bills having accrued since November of 2020. It's like, where is his money going
0: I don't know, and you know what I I thought was a interesting thing as we're talking about this is the irony of him you know paying for the seafood dinner at the same time oh, as yeah. his wife using food stamps to buy their groceries. Oh, a hundred percent. It's so fucked up. I mean, everything about this man is fucked up. So we also learned that he wasn't a great architect. I feel like that is the most unshocking news to probably anybody out there. In September of 2007, an apartment building that he had been hired to renovate was declared unsafe by fire officials who ordered two dozen families to evacuate. And then the New York City Buildings Department Commissioner said that the agency was investigating whether Hewerman may have falsely identified the building as vacant. So this dude is just... There's red flags all over the fucking place.
2: Oh, totally. And there's more. And this actually is not going to be surprising to anyone listening because obviously if you can murder someone and take someone's life, then you feel entitled to fucking everything, right? Oh, so yeah. we also learned that, according to CNN, Hewerman filed consecutive lawsuits against drivers accusing them of injuring him in minor car accidents. Oh my God, I
0: forgot about this. Isn't that
2: crazy? It's like, he's also a fucking scammer because like, I would never do something like that because I don't want to, I would never be like, well, let me fake a car accident, raise someone's insurance, ruin their life. Like, I would never, I would feel so bad about that. But this man- allegedly doesn't feel bad about anything. So of course he's capable of that.
0: And it's like, I'm sorry, but like, what are the chances of getting hit by a car once, if not multiple times in a row? Like this guy, yeah, at the very least is a freaking scammer. Or a terrible driver because
2: the odds of it happening to you many times is if you're at fault also or you're scamming. Exactly. Because most people are really trying not to hit you.
0: Okay, so we got to go back to Nikki's story, and as we dissect the conversation that Rex had with her, we need to go through one of the most chilling aspects of her experience with him, and this is something that we are actually seeing kind of often in a lot of different women that have had interactions with Rex Yorman.
1: He brought up, he was like, oh, are you a true crime fan? And I am. Like, I'm a huge true crime fan, so like, I kind of got excited. I was like, yeah, but you know, when a true crime fan talks about like, like when they talk about a case, it's from an outside perspective. And like, you still have uh, sadness for the victim. It's you're just interested in like the psychology of the killer and and why he did it and all that you know what I mean? It's from like a different point of view. And when he started talking he when he asked if I knew about the Goodwill beach killings, and I said, Yeah, everybody from Long Island does. That's when he got like weird, like real weird, like his body language changed, his eyes like seemed like he wasn't really totally there. It seemed like he was like reliving it, but trying to give you like a hypothetical on what he thinks happened and why and, and like shit like that and who he thinks it could be.
0: So what I was talking about before we heard this clip from Nikki is there are other couple women on TikTok or that have come out recently that have had similar experiences with him where he brings up the Long Island serial killer, the Gilgo Beach killer, whatever, and gets really excited about it. And there are a couple things that she said that I thought were interesting. And one is just his, you know, we're all we're all true crime fans over here. And as the same with Nikki is I'm very fascinated in the psychology of it. How can somebody's mind bring them to do something like that? Alexis is too. I'm sure you're listening. You are too. Um, but we're not like elated when we're talking about it. It's more of this, like how the Fear. fuck is this even possible, you know? Fear. And he just got really excited when he was talking about it. And then also I thought it was in- really interesting when she made the comment about his eyes seems like they weren't totally there. And If anybody out there has had an experience with an actual psychopath before, you understand what this blank, black, soulless eye looks like. Like there's nothing else that I've experienced quite like that when I've had an experience with somebody like that. And it really is the most chilling thing in the entire world. And I'm sure she's experiencing this as he's talking about the Long Island serial killer. Like, there's no way in hell that you can't have that gut reaction of like, I don't feel safe. Like something is wrong.
2: When those people do that, it's like a switch flips. Yes. And it they turn into their other self. Yes. And their mask comes off. Their mask slips off for just a second. You know? That's
0: that's the most perfect way of describing it because it literally is, you could like snap your fingers and there is a different person in front of you. And it is so, so scary. Chilling.
2: So what I think goes hand in hand with Rex discussing the Long Island serial killer case with anyone who will fucking listen is what we know about what the Long Island serial killer did, which is they called and taunted the families of the victims. And that also goes hand in hand with what the police have released about the evidence they have against Rex Ureman in building portfolios of information about the families of his victims. I think that's sort of like a metaphysical trophy. It's like look at all of these, look at the ripple effect of of my my actions. Like look how many people are in pain because of me. It's like very god complexy. Very it's god vi- complexy. It's like, "Oh, you're this pathetic architect who makes no money and has a very tiny little life, but you get to imagine yourself and how much power you have." in the amount of pain and terror and misery you've caused. And that's, like, one of the most pathetic things about Rex Hureman, if he is, in fact, the Long Island serial killer, because he's still fucking nobody. And now you're even less of a person. Now your wife wants to divorce you. Your children will not respect you. Like, you are less than nothing. It's the complete opposite of what you wanted.
0: Yeah. And I think especially with him talking about the Long Island serial killer with somebody that could be another potential victim, like that, like the meta-ness of that for him probably got him off so much, you know, with a, like you're saying, it is a total God, God complex kind of a thing. And that is probably him being his most excited in that moment. And that's what makes it even more scary.
2: Okay. I think it's actually amazing that Nikki's experience it is accompanying all this information because it's really we're seeing so much of what we've learned about him in this experience with him. So let's get back to where Nikki's at in her story. So when she was listening to Rex talk about all this, red flags obviously were getting thrown up left and right. Given the eyes she mentioned, given how his body language changed when he talked about the Long Island serial killer, I mean, her gut instinct started to kick in
1: i told him if he met me in public for dinner and i felt comfortable we could go where he wanted to go
0: but i didn't
1: feel comfortable like he scared me
0: so many of the things that rex said really disturbed nikki obviously rightfully so including his commentary on the crimes connected to the long island serial killer
1: i could tell like he was enjoying it too much it it seemed like somebody who if they could, would go around bragging about what they did. If they could, they would taunt the victims. If they could, they'd taunt the police. Like somebody who just really wanted to be known without being caught in jail. He wanted the opportunity to, like, brag about what he did to somebody who he knows isn't going to say anything. After talking all of this about the Yoga Beach killings and being really weird about it, he goes, I live right by Yoko Beach. And I was like, So, do you want to come back with me? And I was like, trying to make an excuse but still be polite so i said you know it's really late i have to follow you all the way to nasa and then we're so tired driving and i just kind of make an excuse to get out of it and he was like no no i want you to come in my car like he was insistent he did not want me to take my own car and in hindsight i feel like it was because he didn't want to be on traffic cameras having no to- Abandon a car. He seemed like very visually agitated. Like he seemed annoyed, like I did all this work, I came out to Suffolk, and she's not coming with me. I paid for dinner, like you know, like that very like big imposing, like I'm angry that I feel like I did all this and I'm not getting what I want. So based on what Nikki said, it really seems
2: like our predictions about the car are correct. I mean he was like, I want you to come in my car. He wanted to take control of the situation. And he's pissed, probably because he has no money, that he spent the dinner and that she's decided, nope, I'm pulling the plug on this. I told you I'd come if I feel comfortable. You're making me fucking feel uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And again, like her gut instincts are really kicking into high gear. Like she knew something was going to be wrong if she did that. And, um, you know, we really commend her for doing that. It's really scary because you read stories like this and it could have gone anyway. And the
2: one thing I want to add Rex knew that Nikki said, if I'm comfortable, I'll continue the date. Mm. This is a man trying to seem normal. This is a man trying not to make someone uncomfortable. This is a man who wants what he wants at the end of the date. He is yet still unable to fake it enough to make that happen.
0: Well, it's like he can't fucking help himself, you know? Like he, again, the mask coming off, the talking about the Long Island serial killer, it's like he can't even like subdue that part of him long enough to try to make this girl feel comfortable enough to go with him somewhere. Like the guy is undeniably just like so disgusting, you know, and in hindsight, Nikki kind of believed that Rex targeted her for an exact reason he understood that desperate circumstances that force women into sex work are for a reason, and he knew that they wouldn't go to the police under any circumstances.
1: I know this is going to sound weird, but I feel like he looked for girls that had records and or were on parole or had an addiction because they were less likely to go to the cops. And if they did go to the cops, way less likely to be believed. He did. He went for girls that he, could, he knew were never going to go to the cops. So at the
2: time Nikki was forced into sex work was when she was struggling with a severe drug addiction, okay? So this is what she had to resort to, and she was able, after this encounter, to pull herself out of it, but the odds, like we said in the beginning of this episode, were so stacked against her, and she's had a lot of time since to reflect on the scenario, and she's beyond that, had to live through the shock of this man who spooked her for being arrested for killing sex workers, right? Like that's a lot to process. And while she's been away from sex work for years and has been thriving in a new career, um, learning about what Rex stands accused of is still understandably very traumatizing considering her proximity to him. And beyond that, Nikki's able to empathize with victims in a way that none of us really can. So as it turns out, our criminal justice system is set up in such a way that works against those trying to actively get themselves out of sex work. And I know we know that. We talked about this in the Heavy Metal Project. We talked yeah. about the circumstances that force women into sex work. But let's hear it from Nikki, somebody who experienced this firsthand.
1: I got not know if you know, but I got, when I was addicted, I got caught with drugs possession. And the judge was up for re-election, so he decided to make an example out of me. I was a first-time offender, and I didn't even have tickets. I was in a sorority, had a 3.9 GPA, did community service in their city, and this judge still wanted to make an example out of me and said that he was giving me one, one deal of three years in prison, or no deal, and I'm going to get the max of 10. And he had high school classes come to every court date I had, and he like tried to slam the book on me and I ended up doing three years in maximum security prison and then another two to max out my probation. That's disgusting. And and I was twenty one years old and never had no record. All I needed was rehab and like counselling and therapy and help. And I ended up coming home and I was young. I had nothing. Nobody wanted to hire me. I couldn't go back to school because when they find out you're a felon, you have to get a felony weaver. You have to write a whole letter. You have to explain yourself. They have to decide if they want you and they never do. And I didn't know what to do. And honestly, I think a big reason I relapsed when I came home and ended up addicted again was because I had such limited options to get my shit together.
0: You know, I think it's interesting because you don't really think about that, right? You don't think about what a woman does when she finally gets herself out of sex work.
2: Right, and if you've been... You know, criminalized for sex work that you didn't want to do in the first place, right? And if you get criminalized for a drug addiction that wasn't necessarily your fault, I mean, a lot of traffickers get women addicted to drugs so they can exploit them and control them, you know? Like this shit happens. This didn't happen to Nikki in that particular way, but like a lot of this isn't the sex worker's fault, right? So, yeah, I mean, you're out of jail after serving time for either sex work or, you know, charges related to your addiction and no one wants to hire you. And that's fucking bullshit. And then what are you supposed to do if you have a family or an obligations to other people? Like, what are you supposed to do for money? And that's how many of them end up back in sex work and putting Mm -hmm. themselves at the danger that they wanted to avoid in the first place. In terms of what Nikki was saying about Rex targeting people who they thought wouldn't go to the police. Here's an example of how afraid Nikki was of the police after she served time related to her drug
1: addiction. So I was on parole and I got hit and rear ended by somebody. I wasn't responsible for the accident. Their insurance paid everything. The judge violated me for police contact because they came and wrote up the accident. So I wouldn't go to police if you paid me because if my PO found out I was going to go back to prison just for Reporting it. The sad thing is, I had to wait those eight years till nobody could really see your record anymore, and and then I it ended up being 2020 when I could finally go back to school and get licensed and have a career and do those things because it I had to wait until nobody could see it anymore. So
2: I know if you're listening, this is very fucked up to you. If you like our podcast, I mean we're. Advocates for sex workers' rights. This is the reality of people who are trying actively to leave sex work. It's not fucking easy. They have no one to call in situations where they find themselves in danger. They're forced into these scenarios. And if and when they find themselves in a life threatening situation with someone like Rex Huerman, there's little recourse, especially if she had any inkling that this guy actually was capable of murder. She was not going to call the cops, she was not going to have contact with the cops. And potentially put her life at risk in terms of derailing her life because of, you know, some law enforcement interaction. And in hindsight, we talked about this. Nikki knows that Rex targeted her for a reason.
1: Um, I think there were a lot of times I wanted to like sink back into it, but I guess I one, that with him really scared me. And two i wanted better for myself all along from the beginning so i didn't want to end up dead or back where i was and i knew if i got into that kind of work again no matter how good the money is i would have ended up relapsing and like that wasn't worth it to me i told people for years like this isn't a new thing i told every guy i've dated i told my husband i told everybody and I swear to God, I had dinner with the Google beach killer. And everybody thought I was just telling this eccentric
0: story. We're hearing a lot of stories like this. And like we said in last week's episode, we want to hear from anybody that was connected to Rex. If you want to talk about your story, we will be here to tell it. So thank you so much for Nikki telling us her full story. And shame on any other news outlet out there that's just taking sound bites and photos that she doesn't want out there and just turning her into a smaller version of herself like fuck you guys
2: yeah I completely agree and Nikki thank you we support you and we appreciate you sharing the shit that the news isn't talking about right the obstacles you faced in trying to get out of sex work Um, the fear you experienced the lack of recourse you thought you had and you know, your fear of the police as a result of severe prosecution um, for a drug addiction when what you needed was treatment. And we're just so happy that you're okay, that you're here, and that you pulled yourself out of this against all odds. And it's why we, before this arrest even happened, you know, worked really hard to support SWAP, the Sex Workers Outreach Project. I mean, this is the kind of stuff they're trying to combat. And Nikki isn't the only one who was. It has been dangerously close to losing their life or within proximity of a serial killer. I mean, sex workers who don't want to be doing this are dealing with encounters like this every day. And there should be more recourse and they should have more rights. And, you know, I love this hybrid episode. I love that we could bring you like the active news and also work in. Some bigger picture shit that needs to be talking about that I think the news to this point has been missing.
0: And again, if you are listening and you have a story to tell, especially about Rex Heuerman, please email us hello at the first degree podcast. and uh, we will be back next week with probably another update on this absolute freaking monster.
2: Oh, you'll want to listen. We have some stuff coming for you that's going to blow your mind and shock and horrify as it should. And remember, I mean, just going to give this caveat, Rex is innocent until proven guilty, although the evidence looks really bad. So I feel kind of okay about this.